Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. We were recently aboard the flagship of the Royal Navy, HMS Queen Elizabeth, in New York Harbor for the fifth annual Atlantic Future Forum, a gathering of senior British and American thought leaders from government, militaries, and industry to discuss international security, strategy, technology, innovation, and more. While aboard, we spoke with British Transportation Secretary Anne-Marie Trevelyan on the government's new maritime strategy, and Mark Goldsack, the Director of the Department for International Trades, Defense, and Security Exports. First, we'll hear from Secretary Trevelyan, then Mark Goldsack. But before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting and trade show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran. Before her current job as Transportation Secretary, Trevelyan served as Secretary of State for the Department of International Trade. Here's our conversation with Anne-Marie Trevelyan. Ma'am, thank you so very much uh, for joining us. Uh, really appreciate it. And that was uh, an amazing tribute that you gave to Her Majesty, um, you know, as we are on uh, the flagship that is uh, named in her honor. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure uh, to be here and to be able to talk a bit more about the maritime security uh, plans and strategies that we're looking to roll out uh, in the UK, but of course, which affect uh, the whole world through so many uh, aspects of transport modes. Um, and I thought it was interesting because you connected transport, global economy and the importance of um, global trade and free and open trade right now, which is being challenged by the Russians, uh, certainly in the Black, uh, Black Sea. Um, talk to us a little bit about the new maritime uh, strategy that you've developed and what it means, because ultimately you're tying this maritime strategy uh, to an actual that it has defense implications. Give us this sense on what sort of the foundational elements of the new strategy are. So the strategy is uh, aimed at looking holistically across uh, the whole maritime piece and how we use uh, not only the technology we have, but look to develop new ones, both to protect our homeland, uh, to uh, protect those international trade routes, ours and indeed uh, everyone else's, uh, to ensure those free flows of trade, which are so critically important to supporting and underwriting a healthy and growing economy. And of course, looking to uh, the resilience and protection of our oceans, because if we don't do that, we find all sorts of other potential threats coming in into play which we need to manage. So this is a holistic view really for the first time, harnessing what are many excellent skills and indeed uh, already some uh, frameworks in place to try and think much more impactfully about how our maritime security and the relationships we have uh, with our friends and allies around the world to make sure that we are protecting those critical things because at the end of the day economic growth is the uh, thing that brings us greater certainty of peace uh, those democratic countries who believe in ma maintaining uh, the rules-based order and the flows of free trade are those who will assure our own economies but also those who are less able to defend those places themselves so we have an important responsibility in my opinion, to make sure that we use all our talents uh, and work with our friends and allies to protect those free flows of trade across the world. Um, in, in your talk, actually, you gave a rather robust argument for sea power, didn't you, ultimately? 
So I have always personally felt that uh, we are a maritime nation, an island nation in the UK. Uh, we have a natural affinity with the sea. We have, of course, been incredible free traders for hundreds of years. Uh, and, you know, you go back into our history, Queen Elizabeth I, interestingly, uh, this this ship's, you know, first, first queen was all about uh, assuring uh, our traders as they went out uh, and built relationships around the world. And it was our Royal Marines who were sent on board their ships to help defend and maintain those free flows of trade. This is something that's in our DNA. And what we need to continue to do as those uh, routes change, ports are not only seaports, they're airports. Uh, you know, we think about how we empower uh, our businesses and our inward investment uh, to really impact our economies. People at the end of the day are the ones who trade between each other. Goods are bought and sold by, by you know, willing sellers across the globe. So what we must do is assure that sea routes are absolutely secure. And we have, we've seen with Ukraine and the Russian, uh, you know, blockading of those Ukrainian ports is the impacts of that when it fails to work are catastrophic and much, much wider reaching than I think any of us perhaps had thought or realised. Um, do, uh, you talked about developing technology for the commercial sector uh, in the maritime space that then gets extended to improving uh, military sea power and uh, the Royal Navy and indeed more broadly given the, the UK's importance in the, in the global defense ecosystem. What are some of the commercial technologies you think are most exciting that have actually the most applicability to future military and sort of national secure, more, more direct national security applications? So uh, in launching our um, maritime, uh, clean maritime competitions, we have encouraged, uh, you know, small enterprising uh, businesses across the UK to think about many of the different challenges, be they cyber threats, be they environmental threats, be they the opportunities to find clean energy solutions to help as part of our bigger challenge to uh, keeping uh, global temperatures to 1.5. Those sorts of challenges across the piece because they all have incremental impacts if we don't get those solutions right. So uh, we've done a, you know, uh, many flowers bloom uh, philosophy to this, you know, small amounts of money to a brilliant a group of PhD students can suddenly, you know, create those next solutions in doing that as we continue to support them and help those grow and bring in with investment to support them where they have really great ideas. We will see not only our commercial sector see the benefit, but of course, our military sectors uh, be able to build those in and indeed help them to maintain uh, the security of our sea lanes, which is, of course, you know, the really uh, the important part. And often it's the other way around in defence. In times of war, you get great uh, innovation coming out of it, which then becomes embedded a part of uh, civilian life. In this arena, we've actually got very, very large numbers of people thinking in all sorts of areas where those impacts uh, can be great. So it's a really exciting programme uh, in terms of our energizing our own people. I think we have for a number of years uh, left the maritime space in terms of its security to our Ministry of Defence and our uh, border forces but actually this needs to be a uh, a national endeavour as we all think about those instincts because they are not only uh, the, the counter-piracy issues for instance where you know that that can block a sea lane the issues around understanding weather uh, looking at the technologies that space brings us to understand the weather so that uh, you know the issues of a ship getting stuck uh, in uh, you know the Suez Canal and the impacts that has these are all in of themselves small things but if we think about them in a more holistic sense we know that we can build in those securities and those protections for 
our uh, not only our, our British shipping that's moving, but all those who are moving goods to and from. And they build in, and it's fascinating to watch how, uh, in terms of using those technologies, uh, these huge, huge industries, these big shipping companies, are there to help test and drive that. And in doing that, our military can work both alongside them uh, and take those technologies in-house as well. Are there any specific technologies that jump out at you? I mean, aside from, for example, greening, whether it's a connectivity technology or, um, you know, unmanned systems, for example, uh, right? I mean, there's a lot of discussion for harbor policing, for example, there could be a greater unmanned role. What are, what are some of the specific technologies do you think are most exciting from the commercial sector that are most applicable to defense? So we are seeing uh, an enormous number of uh, new ideas coming through and looking to see if they can be commercialised uh, around uh, clearly the, the whole piece around greening those new fuels, uh, not only the, the delivery of these new fuels and indeed the volumes that we needed, but how, how we deliver those. Those are really interesting and they are driving to the opportunities for green, for instance, green shipping corridors, which might alter the flows uh, of shipping across the world. Uh, and of course, as we think about uh, the potential of climate change impacting uh, the high north and the fact that we might see shipping lanes on a regular basis taking different different routes we have to think about how we can manage the uh, literal practical securities uh, and indeed the uh, counter you know the the counter threats that we need to work along so we've got all sorts of uh, really interesting groups coming through uh, in those areas i think it interconnects and I think that's what's really interesting about this is you can't take it in isolation. It's in looking at the whole that we start to genuinely shift the dial and create a safer environment for our shipping. And, and uh, it's, it's not just shipping, right? It's also the commercial aviation industry that's looking for greening. So one does contribute to the other from your standpoint as the transport sector. Absolutely. So as transport sector, I look across all modes of transport uh, and in, in taking on the challenge that is net zero, that is driving a whole series of new technologies uh, which then help us to think about those security threats. You know, ports are not just shipping ports. They are uh, sitting in all sorts of ways. And, you know, the data flows that we see uh, traveling through our cables under the sea, you know, if 95% of all goods, uh, you know, sit on a ship, 97% of all data travels in cables under the sea. So in every sense, uh, our seas are critically important and making sure that we have uh, the protections that are relevant and uh, bring the both best added value but also the most security is critical and how we can then help you know our military but also uh, our friends and allies to make best use of those will be critical to success. Um, let me ask you a, a broader uh, security uh, issue. Um, what the Russians may or may not have done to the Nord Stream pipeline, I understand that there's uh, that that's uh, under investigation, um, and military leaders, whether it was Chief of Defense Staff uh, Admiral Radikin or the First Sea Lord uh, Sir Ben Key, both have sort of discussed we have systems in order to protect that. But I wanted to ask you a broader sort of infrastructure protection question. Um, what's the holistic view, whether it's for cyber and physical infrastructure, for transport and and all the things that go with it, are you satisfied with where, you know, the roadmap for that? Because the vulnerabilities are significant. We saw that in Colonial Pipeline, for example, in the United States in the ransomware uh, attack, where a company did not invest perhaps as much into its security as it, as it should have. Do you have a broader sort of vision for the securing of all of this critical infrastructure, whether on the cyber side and on the physical side? I mean, are you, are you satisfied and where do you see opportunities maybe for improvement? So I don't think we can ever be satisfied because by definition, if we are, then uh, those who would wish us harm will find a way to get through the barriers that we've created. So this is a continuum. It always is, uh, be it from the old fashioned, how would you, you know, 
lock the front door of your house to make sure a burglar can't get in, right through to the protection of our undersea cables and thinking about how we do that and our airspace and so on. So this is a continuum. What we have to therefore do and government's responsibility is to continue to encourage uh, and empower those who might see solutions and indeed see ahead of the problem uh, and try and give us that protection in that sense. So this is a continuing piece of work uh, and as it always has been, and it must continue to be, the technologies change, develop uh, so many uh, new ways of working uh, around cyber, which, you know, you and I will probably never be able to keep up with. But that next generation who are looking at the world differently and can see ahead are critically important to making sure that we can protect uh, our citizens and our assets and indeed those of our allies. Uh, last question. Uh, climate change, you mentioned it. You also mentioned uh, just the high north. Uh, as sea levels rise, I mean, it was an unprecedented uh, summer in the UK. We were there for Farnborough and it was the hottest day ever in British history, uh, especially if you were on the runway at Farnborough, uh, where apparently it was the highest recorded temperature, uh, obviously on a gigantic slab of concrete but um, from from your standpoint do you have a sense for what the amount of investment will be required and may be required as sea levels rise given that the UK is a maritime nation and it is very ports dependent uh, and climate change is not just limited to the high north or people on the equator but it affects everybody it's affecting Norfolk Naval Base uh, as well on other ports you know Miami for example floods regularly do you have a sense on what the infra infrastructure investment is going to be and what the long-term program will be to make sure that the UK remains as competitive as possible and, and as safeguarded as possible from climatological risk? So I think we are probably not able to put a figure on it, and that is one of the challenges that uh, all our industries and our, you know, our own securities need to think about. Uh, we see incredible work, for instance, uh, along the Thames. Uh, we're building a new Thames barrier, uh, really forward-thinking, uh, you know, built for a much greater challenge uh, than we would expect. But as as uh, the climate activity has demonstrated, uh, nature is uh, not uh, being too generous. She continues to fight back. Uh, and it is our job both to respect that and try and fix the errors we have made, but also importantly, to adapt and th therefore become resilient. Importantly, we will do that here. We can invest and, you know, we have the resources. What we have to do also is develop the technologies to help that so that we can share those with those countries who are not able to invest in the same way, who can then benefit from the technological advances that we come up with uh, in the wealthiest countries and make sure that we help those countries most in need, particularly our small island developing states, uh, to be able to adapt and be resilient. Uh, because if we don't do that, we are failing in our duty uh, as part of our planetary family. Ma'am, thank you very much for the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. We also spoke to Mark Goldsack, a retired British Army brigadier who led the Ministry of Defense's urgent operational requirements and counter-improvised explosive devices programs supporting the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, during which he played a pivotal role in rapidly developing and fielding critically needed capabilities for troops in combat. He also served as director of British Army Equipment. Since 2019, he has headed the UK's Defense and Security Exports Organization, which spearheads Britain's defense exports ranging from hardware to training to cyber advice and planning, including the transfer of UK weapons and training for Ukraine. Here's our conversation with Mark Goldsack. Mark, it's an absolute honor and uh, pleasure seeing you. I know we saw each other very briefly at Farnborough, but uh, you were doing uh, very important work uh, at the time, and unfortunately we had to reschedule. So thanks so much for making time for us today. 
Uh, always a pleasure to catch up, um, given that we see you in different parts of the world at different times of the year, but uh, always a pleasure to catch up, um, particularly when, as we are at the moment, we're looking down the throat of some really quite serious challenges across the globe at the moment, not least of which is the devastating impact that the um, outrageous, egregious invasion of the Ukraine by Russia has caused. So, yeah, sad times in some respects, but also good to catch up with old friends and a pleasure to catch up with you here in New York. Um, absolutely, indeed. Um, we were uh, supposed to meet at Farnborough, and you had a very large uh, delegation uh, from Ukraine uh, that you were working with. You're the centerpiece of efforts between the British government uh, and, and Ukraine to, to help the nation. Um, talk to us about the extent of the aid, how you guys are doing it. What are the next steps? Because the aid the British government and the U.S. government and indeed NATO allies and partners have been instrumental in uh, uh, Ukrainian capability. What's the work so far accomplished? What's more to be done? Uh, those are some great questions and some big issues embedded in there. And I guess uh, it probably ought to start by saying that um, this is a combined effort. Um, it's a combined effort across government, it's a combined effort across industry, and it's actually a combined effort across the international spectrum uh, to make sure that uh, Ukraine gets what it needs uh, to fight the war that it's had imposed on it. Uh, from a UK perspective, um, our efforts primarily have been, as you would expect, led by the MOD. Uh, we support them 150% uh, in their work on this, and uh, much of that work is centred around making sure that we have provided the uh, capability that the Ukrainians have requested and in many respects I think all of us uh, across the international community that are involved in this effort would reflect that uh, the Ukrainians have had a set of urgent operational requirements that uh, they've needed and we've done what we can to fulfill those. Some of it has required uh, in-service equipment to be applied, some of it has required new purchases to be uh, made and, and ferried forward and some of it is about how you sustain and then develop the capabilities they've been given so it's a cross uh, sector cross capability cross line of development effort uh, to give it uh, what it's been given um, our work is focused through our MOD uh, where we um, as you would expect triage the requests as they come in work out what can be delivered in what time scale uh, purchase and then deliver forward. But we also provide a function uh, reaching out across the industrial sectors, not just ironically uh, the UK, but inevitably given our international links, we reach into quite a large part of the international market to try and find what it is that the Ukrainians are looking for and then work very closely with my opposite numbers in all of the uh, countries that you would expect to be involved in this to make sure that uh, between us um, we meet the demand signal that's coming out from uh, the conferences that are taking place, from the National Armaments Directors' directions onto us, and from the respective ministries of defence priority issues that get laid on it. So, a huge effort. Uh, from our point of view, we've pushed uh, somewhere in the region £3.8 billion pounds worth of material forward, uh, which I think is an outstanding effort. Uh, US, of course, uh, putting a massive effort uh, on top of that, uh, but we're proud of what we've done. Uh, the government remains committed uh, and has made a number of public statements in this last week to make sure that uh, people don't misunderstand the level of commitment uh, that sits into the effort in Ukraine. Uh, and so it's something I think that will continue to define our activity going forward, uh, led as we are um, by the Minister of Defence making very uh, clear and prioritised assessments of how we can best deliver that ask from the Ukraine.
Um, you were um, uh, chief of the rapid equipping force to try to get uh, gear uh, at the height of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. What are some of the skills you learned there that are integral here? And what are some of the lessons that you're learning from this conflict that will better prepare the United Kingdom and indeed the alliance uh, in the future if this kind of assistance is necessary for another nation? That's a great question. I think there's a couple of things that come out uh, very clearly of this. I think the first piece is getting everybody to acknowledge the urgency. Um, you know, any project that you do in any sector on anything always balances time, cost and performance. Uh, when you're talking about urgent operational requirements, it's time that comes to the fore. And so getting a shared understanding of what the drivers are into any of the timelines of any of these discussions is fundamental to the discussion from the beginning. Because once you've got that, you can then make the considered decisions necessary, the risks that you've got to take or not take, to make sure that you can deliver to that timeline. And those risks can take a number of different forms, sometimes financial, sometimes compromises on capability, sometimes compromises on quantity. But at least if you know what you're talking about in terms of the time factor, you're able to focus things and, and drive uh, some pretty agile behaviours going forward. I think the second thing is then having a very robust triage system. And again, I think the, the way our own Ministry of Defence has operated on this, the way uh, Allied Departments of Defence have worked on this. Um, given our history of the last two or three decades, everybody's quite practised at understanding how to run that triage system, interfacing with the Ukrainian demand signal, and then working out what order and how to deliver that requirement uh, as effectively as possible to the front line. But if you can focus on those two issues, almost everything solves itself in the trail of it. And it's just recognising that clarity and focus at a time of great stress is what gives you the most benefit. Um, it is uh, a globally challenging situation. Uh, tensions rising in the Asia-Pacific, obviously concerns about China's uh, behavior in, this, in, in the South China Sea vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, but as well as, uh, you know, there are flashpoints around the world and, you know, even terrorism continues to remain a challenge that uh, we have to be engaged in and allies and partners are, are uh, focused on. From your standpoint, what is the... Uh, environment, the security environment you're working on? What are the systems that are in greatest demand? I remember several years ago, you started talking about cyber as being a very, very important capability. Now you have a cyber ambassador uh, in the form of uh, Juliet Wilcox, who works on your team uh, to try to do that as an important UK uh, export. What are the things that are in the highest demand and you spend your time talking to uh, with uh, the folks that you're trying to deepen UK security relationships with worldwide? Uh, another great question, and I'll be a bit careful if you excuse me on how I answer it because uh, there's, there's some operational elements that lie at the heart of that answer. Um, but I think in, in general terms, we've seen um, the world recognise, and when I say the world, I mean globally, most nations now recognise there's some very significant, very real threats out there. Um, we use the terms East and West interchangeably often, but uh, you can see that in the, in, both in Europe and in the Indo-Pacific there's some really serious physical security and defence concerns that sit out there. And that affects everybody. Net effect of that is that we've seen this uptick uh, across the whole spectrum of capability in terms of demand uh, as people are looking to a less certain future and looking to make sure that they're prepared to face it as best they can. Now, what does that mean for us uh, as a country, us as an organisation? Well, we um, recognise the imperatives that are coming through um, our traditional defence and security channels and uh, working relationships with all of our friendly foreign countries. And as we've picked up, um, you touched on cyber. It's worth just talking about that. Everybody recognises now, I think, the significance of having um, as much security as you can in your uh, in, in your cyber domain because if you don't you become vulnerable uh, 
And so it's something that uh, we've recognised. We've uh, expanded our capability in this space. Juliet's been a great addition to the team and she uh, is now heading up and spearheading our efforts to make sure that um, not just uh, in the pure defence space but across the whole of the security associated areas that deep line uh, logistic line that sits behind the projection of hard defence capability is as secure as it can be and that includes going deep into the civil economy uh, because just when you take simple things like uh, you know the security of financial transactions these things as you're seeing play out uh, with the war in ukraine start to have a global significance very quickly so it's a major piece of work it's one that's incredibly important and we in the uk are blessed with uh, an industry that is innovative world leading genuinely and drives much of the capability development that sits in this space and it gives us a unique uh, set of tools with which to confront the threat and work with allies to work out what suits them best. So, huge piece of work for us. Um, let me take you uh, to Naval. Uh, several years ago, uh, a lot of Type 26 uh, frigate wins in Australia, in Canada, which were uh, terrific, reducing pressure on the on, on the UK and, and the Royal Navy. Uh, John Howey of Babcock is uh, very, very confident that a Type 31 uh, is going to deliver and deliver at a value. What does the Naval portfolio look like going forward, and what do you think the prospects are for the for the Type 31, which was developed uh, as another very strong UK Naval export product? Um, thanks. Another great question, and straight on, straight on the nail there. Um, I mean, I think we, what we've seen is that there's a massive uptick globally in the demand for maritime capability um, as a more insecure world uh, faces us. The need to secure your coastline, secure your maritime assets has never been greater. Uh, that affects everything from energy to food security. It affects the way people look at their lines of communication. It affects uh, almost every dimension of national life wherever you are on the planet. As a result, the work that we've been doing nationally has started to come to fruition because whilst you touch, and I'll come to the Type 31 uh, program in, specifically in a moment, but um, what we have sought to do is through the National Shipbuilding Office come up with a very comprehensive approach to the maritime sector, recognising the cross-sector linkages that sit in there and that deep reach into other technologies because as we develop, as we expand our capabilities in this area, we need to be having a weather eye on where it takes us in terms of sustainability and the innovations that are coming in through uh, sustainable energy sources, uh, the way that we develop uh, autonomy, other technologies like that, all of this has a bearing in the way that maritime capability gets shaped. Now at the heart of it, there still remains the need to cut some steel and deliver some ships and the Type 31 or the Arrowhead 140 design uh, that lies at the heart of it has been a staple of much of uh, what uh, the most recent exports from uh, UK shores have looked like. And again, it's been hugely well received on the world market. Um, you know, I'm, I almost don't need to proclaim it myself, given the amount of commentary that's been in the defence press on it. But when you're looking at capability delivered to time, cost and performance and a very good cost and a very tight time, this is a project that's genuinely exciting and that's why you're seeing the uptick in interest internationally on it. Um, but that plays through across the whole of the maritime piece and I think when you look at um, the way maritime security is going to play out in the North Atlantic, in the North Sea, when you look at what's going on uh, in the South China Sea, the importance of maritime has always been there. Um, and the trick, I think, for everyone involved in this, particularly across uh, 
the friendly foreign countries that we work with, is to recognise that this bridges into the civil shipping area as well, and therefore um, the ability to sustain the that massive amount of sea trade that goes on and the other activities that occur in there um, remains central to what we're doing. And for us, the national shipbuilding strategy, which I would commend everybody, is a very fine read. Um, it, when you read that alongside our defence and security industrial strategy, you start to see the framework there of how we're seeking to partner with the world. And that's the critical world word in all of this. I think the amount of investment that countries now put into this means that it, it can no longer be that very single transactional, traditional uh, export that people might once have talked about. This is very much about how we partner up um, work together to co-design, share the IP in the most effective way possible so that you don't only end up with a great new capability in your inventory, whatever it happens to be, but you also end up with something that you can sustain, work yourself, uh, share uh, the value of with other um, third parties as well. And that tends, I think, to create a much more stable long-term relationship around which you can sustain and develop the capability generation after generation. So I think we're seeing that birth of this new approach live at the moment. And given the threats that we face, the next 10 years are going to be critical in delivering that. Um, last question, uh, one, uh, neither one of which you have direct control of but may uh, impact you. One is, uh, you know, the pound is at a low, euro is at a low, dollar is riding very high, and supply chains around the world are, are very uh, stressed. We heard from uh, Sir Stephen Lovegrove, uh, the industrial uh, base uh, advisor to the Prime Minister, talk a little bit about that, and, and certainly that plays into the strategy, given how important exports are to the, to the UK economy. Um, are either on the supply chain or, or on the currency side of things, are they impacting anything that you're doing and your ability to be able to execute your mission of advancing um, UK security interests worldwide? Uh, again, great questions. Um, I, mean, I have to start by saying that uh, I, d I don't work for the Treasury and therefore uh, currency fluctuations are not my area. But uh, the, the factors you, you described there are factors that affect us on a daily basis anyway. And so they're not things that we're particularly phased by in terms of having to deal with them because they're, they're, it's a factor of international trade that you're going to be dealing with um, currency fluctuations routinely and most people's international defence programmes are set up in a way that uh, is designed to accommodate for those surges when they come in uh, and also you have to deal with really quite taut supply chains and that when you see a period of instability as we're looking at at the moment means that we all have to do quite a lot of deliberate work to make sure that with our key industrial partners and our key international partners we're confident that we've got um, a good lockdown on what our supply chain looks like across the globe, where the critical points in it are, and whether or not we've uh, secured it uh, for a long-term future. So there are issues, absolutely. Uh, are we worried by them? No, because it's something that we plan for on a routine basis anyway. Um, but we're very conscious that this um, situation we find ourselves in today means that the work that we're doing in those areas is ever more uh, germane to what we're doing. It, it is absolutely at the heart of it. and. It's the joint capability planning, effectively, that's going to flow from this uh, that will become uh, out of Rammstein, it'll come out of the, uh, the international conferences that are looking at how we face this, that will help us set the priorities to make sure that that flow works in as smooth and cooperative way as it can 
uh, rather than being uh, over, overly stretched by too competitive in an international environment developing around it. So we know what we've got to do. We've got great relationships around the globe to test and work with it. We've got fantastic relationships with the departments that lead on those bits of the economy. Uh, so as an organisation that's very much focused on how we help build defence and security capability uh, with our allies, um, we're very confident we've got the tool sets to hand to be able to deal with that. You know, you, you mentioned allies and partners, and there are no uh, two better allies and partners than the United States and the United uh, Kingdom. What are, on, what are some of your top agenda items in terms of uh, deepening the relationship uh, and uh, helping uh, each nation address uh, some of its most pressing needs? No, you, I mean, you put your finger on it. We, we work incredibly closely with uh, our friends and allies across the United States, and not just at one layer. Um, you know, this is a very uh, deep set of linkages in there, uh, both between our industries, uh, where there's a considerable amount of co-investment that goes on and quite a lot of um, joint capability generation, and we are embedded in each other's uh, supply chains uh, really quite profoundly. But not just in industry, across government as well. And as we look at the challenges that we're facing at the moment, that's never been more important. And so the discussions that we routinely have across the piece, both uh, through the departments of defence as they talk to each other about the operational priorities they're serving and the work that's being done and led by our Ministry of Defence on uh, the support to Ukraine, how we synchronise becomes ever more important and how we work together to make sure our combined industrial base delivers the most efficient and effective support it can remains our target. So some great conversations, always good to be across here in the United States having those uh, conversations. We're seeing some really great uh, projects coming to life along alongside this. A lot of that is operationally focused and so you'll see those announcements come out in the press as we as we go through uh, the next few months. Uh, but it is fantastic to see what has always been a very tight operational relationship in the Five Eyes space uh, play out and you can see from the support that Ukraine has got just how determined uh, not just NATO but all of the friendly foreign countries involved in this priest uh, are to make sure that Ukraine gets the support it needs. Mark. Always an honor and pleasure. Thanks so very much and look forward to talking again soon. Fantastic. Great to see you. See you soon.